And great to be with you as always on Swing Thoughts. Welcome to the podcast, the only golf podcast that doesn't make you feel like you wish you were play some other sport. <laughs> All the other golf podcasts are just too, they take themselves too seriously, Tim. We have fun. It's uh, That's the uh, voice of uh, reason, the mental performance coach at Glen Abbey Golf Academy, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca. My name's uh, Howard Glassman, the Humble and Fred Radio Show on Sirius XM, HumbleandFredRadio.com, and uh, Golf Nerd for many, many years. This program also brought to you by TaylorMade Adidas, TaylorMade, the number one driver in golf. Coach Tim was out beating it yesterday, hitting it good. Every day is another day of flushing with the M1. Ball strike has been very good. Very good. The ball, uh, one drive that was semi off yesterday, playing really well. Uh, the putter not behaving as well, but I'm okay with that. It means I'm not a bad person. If you I had a few three putts. You're definitely not a bad person. Although I saw Timmy after his round yesterday, and he sort of said, "Yeah, he did good. He didn't putt very well." He's playing on my home course. I said, "Really?" He goes, "Yeah, I three putted six or seven times." And I went, "Did you? Did you really?" Is was it really six or seven times? I was awfulizing. Yeah, that's how golfers do it, though. Golfers go, oh, man, I three-putted every green. Did you really? Was but, it every green you three-putted? No. No, no, no of course no. not. But I should have been it feels celebrating like it, my successes. It was it was not taking my own advice. Yeah, well, you know, we're just all human playing this ridiculous game. Uh, coming up, uh, we're down. Listen, if you're downloading this show, uh, whatever, we were we recording it. Uh, we recorded it on uh, Monday, September 26, which is the day after Arnold Palmer passed away. So we're going to be talking about him. Um, later on on the show, I'm going to tell you a story, my Arnold Palmer story, that I, I don't tell very often because it's the kind of thing that sounds like I'm BSing. And I told it on my uh, radio show, and, and I just said, you know, it's, it's one of those things I trot out every once in a while, but I'm going to share it with you. Uh, and I, I'll preface it by saying that I've only asked two people in my life for their autograph. One is Muhammad Ali, and the other is Arnold Palmer. And so I'll tell that story. Um, also, this show is brought to you by... Um, Glen Karen and Blue Springs. Blue Springs. Which, Blue Springs having its <laughs> final men's night this week, this really? Friday. Everyone's got all their cars and their uh, buses lined up so they can get a ride home and be responsible. Is it men's... Well, our final men's night is a couple weeks, and I'm, uh, I'm hosting it as well. It's just a... Uh, it's fun, you know, filled with uh, golfers, conviviality. And uh, anyway, Clublink. Camaraderie. Yes. There's never been a better time to join Clublink. Get in now before it snows. <laughs> and uh, now, please welcome to our program. I th- is he making his, 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 at least his third appearance? Third. He is uh, widely recognized or wild, wildly and widely recognized as one of the leading purveyors of the mental side of this ridiculous game. Train Your Golf Game is what he's all about. The mind factor, the man behind the mind, Carl Morris. How are you, sir? I'm very good, Howard. Good to be uh, good to be back again. Is uh, is three some kind of record? Uh, now you're on the special level. Definitely, you're platinum. Yeah, yeah, you're right. platinum level. You're platinum level, my friend. How are things going? How was this summer for you? Uh, teaching a lot. Was it busy? Was it a, has it been a good year? Yeah, it's been a, it's been a good year. It's been a busy year working with uh, 
quite a few players and uh, doing lots of seminars around uh, around the country and around Europe. But we, when you say when, when you say summer, we had about four days in September that sort of <laughs> masqueraded as summer. Other than that, it was just varying degrees of wetness. Uh, I'm not sure if you heard Tim talking about his golf game yesterday, and I and I just imagine you know when you're steeped in the world of golf, mental performance. You know, Tim. You know, you have to sort of still play golf. Do you ever get out and play the odd game, Carl Morris? Yeah, I do occasionally. Every year I make a commitment to play more, and then I uh, I get to the end of every year and look back and think I didn't keep to that commitment. So uh, I've managed to play a couple of times this year, and I, I do uh, I do enjoy it when I, when, I, when I get out. I always make the mistake though of, of, of making a comeback game and playing some some decent golf course, which is probably too tough for a comeback game. I uh, I played a wonderful course called uh, Ganton not long ago, which is one of the great courses in the UK, but it's uh, it's it's a bit tough for a comeback game but uh, it was it was a lot of fun we've had a hell of a summer here it's been hellaciously hot yeah it's been amazing uh we've got no excuses for not playing well well what i was sort of getting at with carl though is you know do you are you a good friend to carl morris when you play with him carl morris not to get too far afield in this you know metaphor i'm trying to come up with which is are you is it tough when you're a mental performance coach to be a good mental you know performance player it's a bit like looking at the hairdresser with scruffy hair isn't yeah. it or the, <laughs> or the or the doctor who can't heal himself yeah i think uh, I think what, what always is reinforced to me whenever I do play, I mean, frequent occasions I do play, that it's, it's, it's okay having a conceptual understanding about all of this stuff, but, but to actually implement any of these strategies, you have to do it on a regular basis. You have to play. You have to keep, you have to keep working at it. And, and I'm sure Tim would agree that, 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 that you can simulate things on the practice ground, but the only real place to work, I think, ultimately on your, on, on your mental game is on the, on the golf course. And, you know, that's why I'm so passionate with younger players. I see more and more younger players believing that the, that the Holy Grail is spending hour after hour on the range, and, and obviously that's got a part to play. But uh, you, I remember Ian Woosden saying that the, the only place he learned how to become a golfer was on the golf course. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, even my good friend Howard here um, said that he hit less balls this year and played a lot better. And I found that that's uh, my own experience and experience of a lot of the people uh, that I work with. They're not going to the range to uh, find that that swing that's always going to be consistent and all that because it just really doesn't exist. Is get out there, hit shots, put yourself under pressure, and and, and I think really the key thing is uh, is hitting shots, having some fun out there, carving it, seeing what you want to do, responding to the conditions. That's when you're playing golf. Well, the thing is, Tim, it's, it's interesting. I had a young uh, lady professional who came to see me a while ago, and she'd been an outstanding amateur won all sorts of tournaments, all sorts of uh, trophies as an amateur, and then she turned professional. And then she believed that now she turned professional that she had to work hard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, the definition of working hard was standing on the range, hitting five, six hundred shots a day, and uh, and she was getting to the stage that she was putting more and more effort into the game, but actually getting worse and worse. And she was, she was, it was almost like she was, she was waiting for somebody to give her permission to to play again. And I said, I said, you know, the the thing you've got to do is just, yeah, by all means, get out there and, and hit some balls on the range. But you should be playing golf every day. And as far as I'm, as far as I'm aware, there's not too many professional tournaments take place on a range. So, you know. <laughs> 
exactly. You, you need to get out there and get in that environment, like you say, Tim, that that environment that's ever changing, that's constantly in flux, and then we then we come back to that static environment called the, called the driving range. Yeah, and one of the the key themes as well uh, with. Uh, with me and a lot of people I hang with and play golf with is really that a novel concept of having fun mm-hmm. yep. and that and freeing yourself up from this agony of hitting a bad shot and suddenly I've forgotten how to hit the ball solid the center of the club face is not, is now a mystery to me and I'm a bad person when people just kind of keep it in perspective and have fun um, golf is remains fun and whoa they actually even play better I often say to people, it is within the rules to smile on the golf course. Exactly. Um, you know, you spent a lot of time in your career, and we're going to talk to Carl, too, coming up on the show, a little bit about the Ryder Cup and, and maybe a word or two about what Arnold Palmer or his thoughts uh, about what Arnold Palmer meant to the game of golf. But, you know, Carl, I've been doing a lot of thinking about the mental side of the game of golf, not just this year, but over the 44 years I've played. And I play, I think, just to refresh your memory, I'm like a one handicap. I've played at the amateur level. I've played the Canadian yeah. amateur. And I've played at a fairly high uh, elite amateur level. But what I think I learned this summer is that there doesn't seem to be anyone teaching golfers how to play golf. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can find anyone, any number of people to guide your golfing motion. And there are people like you that have an idea about learning to play the game and some of your uh, suggestions about, you know, playing par 18 and practicing like the game is played. But do you believe or think a little bit about this concept that there is a bit of a golf there that in the game that we play, not a lot of time is spent by teaching pros or even mental performance uh, instructors on the strategy of the game itself. I, I couldn't agree more, Howard. I mean, I, I think the, the, the greatest irony of, of, of golf is that, as far as, far as I'm, I'm aware, that we, we, we're the only sport where you, you could have a coach who, would, who will never see you play golf. Absolutely. You know, can you imagine there was a you know a, a, a basketball coach, an ice hockey coach, a football coach who never saw the team play, and all, and all they all they did was listen to the players on a Monday morning telling them how how good or bad they played. They they, 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 they would just think it was lunacy, and and you know if you, if you go back and you look at it in the game that that. that practice ground driving ranges are a relatively modern phenomenon it's, it's only in the last sort of 40 or 50 years that everybody started spending a lot of time on there and if you go back in you know the early part of the, the game you know the, the Scottish professionals taught people how to play golf on a golf course well, and they were actually out there teaching them how to play certain shots and strategy, as you say, and how to get around the, and the course. And you know, there, there are there are some golf pros out there, really good golf pros, who are now sort of taking up that baton and, and, and getting out there and, and spending more time with the students on the, on the golf course. But it, I think that the, the big challenge for the game for those people who are involved in coaching is that there's an economic factor that it's a lot easier to sort of just stand there and give half an hour lessons than it is to actually go out there and play half a dozen holes but I'm sure most golfers would gain far more by spending time on the, on the course with a professional. Uh, you know and that's kind of my, my point you know I used I, I was talking to somebody about this recently I used the hockey analogy it's as though uh, you went to learn hockey and all they did was teach you how to skate and shoot a puck and never you know about the strategy of you know where you need to be on the ice and looking for open yeah. ice and all the things that we all grew up learning to do because we played the game. I mean, once you learn how to 
skate and shoot a little bit, you sort of went off and played right away. Whereas I think, again, you know, I don't want to get too deep into this, but the paradigm, the model of the, the instruction, the way it's done now is, is a model that I think is broken. And it's one of the reasons that we're not improving as golfers. Like, I totally believe that this whole... I was saying to Tim at lunch, you know, I, I have this line about how, you know, in 1971, Golf Digest, you know, the cover is, you know, how to cure your slice. And I guarantee somewhere in the last 12 months, there's been dozens of articles in Golf Digest and Golf World about curing your slice. And my joke was, you know, we've sent people to space and brought them back. Don't tell. But yet the slice solution eludes us. Like, it, it can't be that difficult. And I think the reason that we're still trying to figure it out is because that's the wrong thing to be worrying about. You'd be better off learning how to play a game of golf using your slice because you'd enjoy it more and get more out of it, is what I believe. Gentlemen, have at it. I agree. I agree with you 100%. However, most people, the reason Golf Channel, Michael Breed, so popular, uh, Golf videos are just a gazillion of them, and golf books on how to do it is that people are absorbed in this idea of trying to hit it better, and the idea comes from that they need to swing better, have, it, have the knowledge, oh, do this, I'm, so therefore it's like I'm off plane, I'm supinating rather than pronating, but it's all this technical stuff, and that's where they go, and I've, I've talked about this golf culture thing a lot, and that's where people seem to be trapped, whereas what you're talking about, Howard, just makes so much sense, play with your slice, just enjoy it. Um, Learn to score with somehow it. Somehow get it un- into the fairway, and and you'll be fine. Carl, what's your sense? Yeah, I mean, again, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And uh, you know, one one of the things I say to players is that how long have you been doing this for? How long have you been taking lessons and 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 hitting balls on the range? And they'll give it anything from two years to six years to ten years. And I'll say, well, have it worked? Have you got any better? Uh, obviously, most of them say no. And, and they say, well, the definition of insanity is to keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. I mean, it's what Einstein's famous phrase. And they said, well, you know, and I often say to say to play, well, let's just, you know, you're at the desperate stage. Let's just let's just experiment for the next six weeks where you you you, you just go on the golf course every possible time that you can and just find a way of getting it round and and very. Very often they'll come back and say, at first, oh, I'm still not hitting it well, it's not very pretty, but they start to then say, well, I sta- I'm starting to find a way of getting it round. I'm getting it round the golf course in lower numbers. And I think what it does also come back to, I think we've, we've all got to be very, very careful with this. I remember Fred Shoemaker saying years ago that the most important question that you can ever ask a golfer is, why do you play golf? And, you know, we tend to assume that people play golf because they want lower scores. And not not everybody wants that. I mean, there are some people who just love standing on a range, working on the swing, hitting certain shapes, and getting very much into the into the swing. So it does have to come back to the individual and what the individual wants out of the game. But, you know, if, if, if an individual wants lower scores and get the handicap down, well, to me, they, they need to look at the amount of time that they're actually playing the game. And I'll, I'll write back at you, uh, Carl Morris. I agree with what you're saying, but I think I'm not, not to attack what you said, but I'll, I'll just say this. You're right, but sending somebody out in the golf course, hoping they'll figure out that there's a game to be played is, is great. But what I think is there's a, there, there's a need in our game for a, 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 a 
something to bridge that gap. So you can tell somebody that, you know, the, these are some scoring strategies. But I think there should be a golf guide, we'll call him or her. Somebody that doesn't necessarily have to be a professional teacher, but somebody that knows this. Just like when we were kids, you know, the three of us around the same age, you know, when I was 10, 11, 12, 13, all I did was play. And so by yeah. playing, we learned that, you know, you lay up on par fives if you're not in a good spot or that sometimes you can make a bogey by, you know, chipping it back into play and all those things that we know. Yes, sir? Do you mean a really good caddy? You know, actually, uh, I do mean somebody that could be a, a, a caddy slash guide to, to show new players and older players that have been playing their whole lives. And you said not lowering their handicap. Maybe there's a business opportunity Maybe here or what, not. <laughs> Carl, <laughs> you get Tim and I over there to the UK with some of your funny little seminars where you're talking to people. I will tell them the, the, I've got the truth here, my friend. There's an opening in the market. I can feel it arise. You, I'm, I'm not, I know I'm being, it sounds like I'm being somewhat facetious. But no, it's, I, 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 I agree with you, Howard, and I, and, and I think somebody, you know, can fulfil that role. Again, one of, anecdotally, what I, what I hear a lot of club golfers say, because like, I always ask them, tell me about the best golf that you've ever played, and a story that I've heard too many times for it to be a coincidence, they'll say, oh, well, um, the, probably the best rain I've ever played was once when I was up at, at uh, St Andrews or King's Barnes or whatever, and I had a caddy, and I didn't really know where I was going, but the caddy on every hole just said, right, hit it there, or do this or do that and because the caddy provided a clear intention of what they wanted the player to do it didn't mean to say that they had perfect shots every time but they were so clear on what they tried to do that the, that the system took over the body the wisdom of the body whatever we want to call it, it allowed them to play better golf because they were, they were as you said they were being guided around the golf course yeah because they're responding to a direction so they get a, a perhaps a good image of what to do the the caddy says well just you know play it back in your stance and just flight flight it a little bit knock it down and the body goes oh i know how to do that yeah. and the mind sees what to do that and you commit to the shot and let it go rather than this this mixture of things in terms of okay i'm going to oh yeah i'm supposed to aim at my target oh make sure i hinge my wrist and breathe yeah yeah i got to breathe too and it just becomes this hodgepodge of things so i take nothing away from the fact that there is a real huge learning on the mental side the mental performance side you know learning to you know to appreciate the game and to breathe properly and to make good intentions and to you know your after shot routine and a lot of things that are available to students of the mind factor and i think those are all very very valuable but i've often said this on this show carl i maybe even said this to you i was the worst golfer i ever met when it came to being pouty mopey uh ragey all the seven dwarves of doom of golf <laughs> i was all those things and then i found out somewhere in my 30s to late you know late 30s early 40s maybe that's not the best way to go but i'll tell you another thing go ahead wasn't it um, i mean I, I remember reading way back way way back one of the one of the best mental game books one of the forerunners of all of this was uh, Tim Galway's in a game of golf, and there's a, there's a, he quotes in there a famous, um, he calls it the performance triangle. I don't know if you guys have, have read that, and it's, it's it, the performance triangle is, is performance, enjoyment, and learning, and and the, and the, the message of it is that you're trying to keep your, your, your triangle in balance. So 
so it is about yeah we, we've got a performance element but if there's no enjoyment or no learning and it's all about performance you'll never actually actually get the performance that you want and for most people the triangle is so hopelessly out of balance that there's yeah. no enjoyment whatsoever unless there's a great performance my triangle was being held together with duct tape and uh, it was mostly broken because I didn't get any of that. I played a lot of golf, but I didn't get that there was an enjoyment factor that had, I, there, that there was, and I, and I sort of got that. But here's what I've done some thinking about myself. I was also the most swing-obsessive guy I ever met. Like a lot of things in my life, I'm very type A, very uh, obsessive about trying to do things right. And I do that, maybe that's a... F uh, a fault of mine in general, but in golf for sure it was something I was always trying to get my club into a position, and if I could do that, I'd be a good guy. Yeah. But what I've realized is, and this is pretty recently, that what's made me a better player is I've learned to play golf even when my, you know, A-plus swing isn't there. And that's a big, that was a big lesson for me this summer that you can enjoy the game, and there's a game to be played that has nothing to do with how good your ball striking is. And as humans, we're not built for we're not built to repeat movement. You know, fundamentally, what has allowed us to survive as species is, is being flexible in an environment, being able to being able to react differently in an environment to whatever stimulus comes at us. And I mean, there's all kinds of studies on this kind of stuff. I mean, you looked at blacksmiths who, you know, when they, when they swing the hammer and hit the hit the, the anvil or the nail, that they'll hit the, they'll hit the anvil every time, pretty much in the same spot. But the movement is different virtually every time. You know, so this idea that we can stand there and make a repeating swing is, is, is anatomically, physiologically nonsense. So, you know, we have to adapt to the fact that we will have a variation in our golf swing from day to day. But as you just said, Howard, you can find a way of getting it round, even with your B or C game. Yeah, I, I agree 100% with that. And I think so much of what we discount is our own individual abilities and and talent just as a human being mm -hmm. the ability just to send this little ball to that target and the body will figure out how to do that if you yeah. give it the right intention and there's just this obsession with trying to do things correctly as Howard would say and, and gosh I fully am guilty of that of trying to do things correctly and when we can somehow let go of it it, it can actually turn out to play some pretty good golf. and I, But I don't know really what started it, this idea of, of trying to be perfect all the time. Like, I mean, if you're hitting like 250 in baseball, you're doing pretty well. Well, you know, it's funny you said that word perfect. I read that book by uh, Dr. Bob Rotella years ago. I just didn't get it. I really didn't understand it until pretty recently. When Tiger Woods first came on, I said, you know, yeah, I played, I had my, my C game. People used to sort of, it was a little bit, uh, you know, chirp him a little bit. They didn't bit. like it. They yeah. didn't like it, but I get now what he meant. And, and, you know, one last thing before I, I give it to you guys again. You know, Brody, Dr. Brody's, uh, you know, strokes gained, uh, tells you a lot about the minutia of golf. But one of the things that I, I remembered recently was he talked about the difference between golfing, golf professionals' best rounds and their, their rounds when they're not playing well. And the biggest difference between, because everyone looks at it, you know, what's the difference between the number one player and the 150th player? It turns out the biggest difference is when they're not having a good round, what that number is. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing because the best players on the planet, when they have a bad round, it's 71 point something, whereas the 150th player, it can be 72 point something. And it's I remember that. Nick Faldo years and years ago 
um, saying he said, he said that the, 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 the key with this game is it's never going to be how good your good is, it's how yeah. bad your bad is. And, and, and again, it's, it's about finding a way of getting it round with less than your A game, as we were saying. Well, that's uh, that's kind of a lot of stuff right there. The mind factor is uh, where you can find Carl Morris. Carl's worked with a lot of great players, including Darren Clark. They wrote a book together. And Graham McDowell. This is the week of the uh, Ryder Cup. One of the age-old questions of the last 25 or so years is why do the Europeans play so well as a team, and why do the Americans not? Uh, you've been close to some Ryder Cuppers, including a Ryder Cup captain. What's your perspective? I think, it's, I mean, ultimately it comes down to guys hitting golf shots and the ones who hit the best ones in the, in the week and all the most putts will, will, will win the Ryder Cup. That's, that's the bottom line. But I think over the years there has been a definite... Uh, camaraderie with the with the European teams. I know it means an awful lot to both to both sets of players, but I think there seems to be more of a of a, of a team element uh, to, to the European sides of, of of the past few years. I mean, uh, as, as as sad a news as it is today, um, with with Arnold Palmer's passing, I think yeah. you know the, 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 the potential that uh, you know Arnold Palmer. Uh, passing away has the same sort of effect for the American team as, as perhaps the, the passing of Seve did for four years ago. Um, the, 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 uh, the previous Ryder Cup, when there was the famous famous comeback by the European team, uh, and they all said that they felt Seve's presence. So, um, you know, may, maybe there'll be a similar kind of Palmer effect this time. How much of it do you think could come down to the idea that Americans tend t- to be? viewed as a society more individualistic more sort of you know go for it on their own they can make it happen do you think there's any part that one could look at that in terms of maybe the difference in personalities and cultures or do you think that's too far-fetched i i think that's a little bit far-fetched i mean i i I still i still come back to my original statement that uh, you know, I've often said over the years with the with with, with the captain, I think, and, and this is almost heresy to say that I think I think the, the captain's role can become overplayed in the sense that I'll guarantee one thing from from this Ryder Cup that the win, the winning captain will be a genius and the losing captain will be That's a bit right. of an idiot. Yes, uh, we're talking Watson. It, it still comes back to how people play on a, on a given given day, and as you know, as we know in any in, in any sport. The coach can only, the coach or the manager or the whatever captain can only send a team out onto the, the field of play, and ultimately they've, they've they've got to then take responsibility for it. So um, it will come down to a few a few puts hold, a few puts missed, and, and those individuals who you know if the American team play really really well and they hold lots of puts, they'll, they'll win. It's as simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the you know in the so the. Europeans have won six of the last seven, eight of the last ten. And so a lot of people, there's always the buildup is always very interesting. And Davis Love says it's the best American team in maybe decades. And he's being, there's a lot of people snickering at that. But people are looking at the fact that the American team has two rookies, Brooks Kupka and Ryan Moore, whereas there's six rookies on the European side. And that maybe some of the... The guys like Lee Westwood who've been around for a while, that maybe their best days might be behind them. So in terms of that enormous pressure that people always talk about, how do you think, Carl, that it might work in terms of how the rookies might show or, or not show in this event? 
I, th- I think if you look back at, at, at rookies playing in the Ryder Cup, you know, there's been there's been some outstanding performances over the years. Some guys who were, you know, I'm, I'm thinking way back to sort of Peter Baker and players like that who were kind of not not household names, but they were they were rookies in the Ryder Cup and they went out there. And I remember that particular Ryder Cup; he held putts all over the place and and performed really well. I think I think the the, the big difference now. And, and, it, and it's a good example with, with, for instance, Danny Willett winning the Masters. I think young players are much more mm. prepared to win at a very early age now than they were in, in perhaps maybe the 70s or the 80s. I mean, Tom Watson always said that you know you had to lose a few majors to be able to win them, and I'm not so sure that's the case anymore. I think these young players have such a, a, a rounded education in terms of coaching, the coach on the physical, mental, technical side, and and they, they come out there and, and, and as will it prove these guys are ready to you know ready to win majors Jordan Spieth being another example where they're ready to win majors at a very early age so you know I, I don't see it I don't see naturally being the, 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 the rookies being a, a, a massive weakness for the European team well the golf uh, culture or the zeitgeist of golf has changed so much since the olden days when Watson would come out there and you were a rookie on tour by the time these guys come out they basically played especially college golfers in the States four years of professional style golf and the Walker Cups and the Western Amateurs. They're really not rookies. I mean, Jordan Spieth was 20 and a half years old or 21 years old. You know, in the olden days, the 70s and 80s, they wouldn't have even sniffed a win for four or five, six years. Um, What about this notion, Carl Morris, from the Mind Factor, that the Europeans are playing to win and the Americans are playing not to lose? An, that's, that's an interesting concept. I would I would imagine that most both teams are going out there to win. But you know, I, I think the Americans, in in, in many ways, have, have, you know, maybe, maybe they've got a, a little bit more of a free reign in the fact that they've mm. lost. They have lost so many of the of the previous previous Ryder Cups there. That you know, I'm sure I'm sure they'll, they'll they'll be going out there, and there's an element of just freewheeling a little bit more and backs to the wall and just just. You know, get out there and, and play golf, and go out there and back their abilities under under that kind of pressure. Which I, I think is one of the best uh, tricks the the Europeans do, or the the sort of confidence game is how every time there's a team, they go, "Oh well, we're the underdogs." Are you? I think if you won <laughs> six of the last seven of them, you're no longer the underdog. You're not the underdog anymore if you've won six out of the last seven. <laughs> well, I, I heard an American player. I can't remember who it was, was talking about the Ryder Cup and the differences in the cultures, and the thought was, uh, no American has ever been practicing as a kid and and trying to sink a putt to win the Ryder Cup. It just doesn't mean the same mm. as the Europeans when they come out it's 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 a unifying competition for them in a way it's not for the Americans. I think what's interesting in the Ryder Cup as a whole, though, I think for me, what I've observed all these is that the, that the, the level of golf that's played more often than not just, just literally goes to another level because these guys are suddenly playing for something bigger than just themselves. Yeah. And the, the, that is interesting to see how you know you know we can go back the last few few Ryder Cups. Some of the scoring in you know the four balls and the, and the singles, the, how how far under par they are, and the birdies and eagles that come flying one after another. And, it, and it, as I say, it's interesting because they are then, they are both playing just for themselves as individual. It, it's 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 something greater than themselves. It's a collective rather than individual. 
Carl, did you? I, w- I wanted to explore this with you. Do you think the Europeans just figure out how to do things better? In in the NHL, the Detroit Red Wings have been a a, a contending team for something like more than twenty five years, and they just have such an amazing structure in terms of how it works from their minor team to making the the NHL team. And I'm wondering if the Europeans just nailed it in terms of you know, the someone coming in as a vice captain, ascending to captain, and figuring out that whole structure as well as really getting that team chemistry thing. I, and I'm wondering if even just picking Ryan Moore, uh, you know, just throwing him on the team is the last bit, is kind of proves maybe a bit of a point the Americans are more, uh, more focused on individual play rather than team play. Yeah, I, I think that's a very good point. I think, you know, uh, certainly with Paul McGinley's captaincy, you know, he, he was slightly contradicting what I said earlier on, but in terms of his preparation, was 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 second to none, and you know, he left no stone unturned. Um, he, he even had in the team room, you know, one of the greatest football managers of all time, Alex Ferguson, came and gave the team a talk beforehand that they didn't know anything about that, and and, and I know Darren Clark's uh, picked Paul Paul McGinley's brains, and and I think I think in that sort of captain stroke, vice captain, there seems to be a little bit more of a continuity with this with the Europeans and maybe that maybe they've, they've continued to, they've got a blueprint that they can they, they follow and then add, add and refine a little bit each each time so I think there's probably an element of that that they they, they go in there with a sense of, I mean going back to the individual players I, I always say to players you know that, that if, you, if, if you've done the best preparation than you possibly can when you get to the first tee well that's all there is to it you, you go out there and whatever happens happens and there must be that sense on the European team that we, we, you know, we have done everything that we possibly can. We are very well prepared, and that that does give a, a, an individual a, great, a, a, a real great sense of confidence that they can achieve that end goal due to that extensive preparation. You know, for a long time, it was kind of fun to watch the Americans lose the Ryder Cup here in Canada. But I said to somebody yesterday, I said, I, I really think it's time they won because if they keep losing, it's going to get less interesting, not more interesting. And so, oh, I still find it interesting to watch the Americans. Oh, do later. you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we would be remiss uh, taping this show on the 26th of September, the day after Arnold Palmer passes away. Just a couple final thoughts, Carl Morris, about the uh, impact that Arnold Palmer had on the game from uh, one of the leading mental performance coaches. I mean, I've, I've been very, very fortunate in this game. I, 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 you know, I didn't achieve what I wanted to do as a player, but I've been very fortunate as a coach. And there's, there's, there's a few outstanding memories of, from, from over the years, but probably the one that's right, right up at the top. And I'm not saying it just, just from today. I've got a, I've got a picture up on my wall at home that the very first time I ever went to the Masters, I was, I was driving in the car with Graham McDowell, and we drove down Magnolia Lane. Um, and got to, got to the bottom of the drive and opened up the door and the first person that we that we both saw was was Arnold Palmer stood there in his green jacket and we got out and he and he shook his and he shook his shook his hand and you know this 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 huge hand enveloped enveloped mine and vi- vice like grip and Graham stood on one side and I stood on the other and we had, we had the picture taken with the king and he, you know he, he didn't know me from Adam but he was just just so warm and friendly and you could see you could see the way that he was with with the sort of members there. Augusta and the, and, and the warmth that he had and I think even right to the end you know right into his, his sort of 70s and 80s he just he just still loved to play the game didn't he and I think above anything else 
that that shone through. He, he, he actually loved the game of golf, and that and that radiated out of him from you know the early days and when he was winning majors right up until his 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 his, his, his eighties, which which was wonderful to see. Um, we're going to let you go, but I'll quickly tell you, when you listen back to the podcast, I'm going to tell a story about being lucky enough to spend some time at Bay Hill with a Canadian tour player who was a friend of mine. And I won't give all of it away, but I remember watching Mr. Palmer warm up, and he had two tour bags filled with golf clubs. <laughs> he would, would have been 66 or 7 at the time, and he was trying out different drivers and different irons because he was still trying to find it. <laughs> he was still trying to find the perfect driver and the perfect irons. Well, in, There was no 14-club rule, by the way. At Bay Hill for Mr. Palmer. Um, hey, he had uh, as many as he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Um, I'll tell you a quick story. So the first, the, every day he was at Bay Hill, he would play in this thing called the shootout. And there would be all these different players, scratch golfers to tour players to members that were good players. And he would be the first guy out. There would be between 20 and 40 guys. And there was a rule. There was a rule at the, at the starter that nobody could hit a second ball. And one day I was, and every day I was there, I'd watch Mr. Palmer tee off. And I got to play in this thing a few times. So I would wait no matter where I was, where, where I was never in his group, but wherever I was, I'd go near uh, the tee so I could watch him tee off. And so one day he hits it and he just, you know, he bunts it out there about 240 and he kind of heals it and he goes to get another ball. And the starter gently says, uh, just one ball rule, Mr. Palmer. And Palmer looked at him for a second. <laughs> just the look he gave him, which was, you know, I own the course, right? <laughs> so, and he it was about to break the rule, and he kind of just went, no, okay. But I could just see for a second just the look he gave him because he wasn't happy with the drive. But that look was like, you know, I'm Arnold Palmer, right? <laughs> okay. But to to his credit, he didn't get a second ball and hit a, uh, a breakfast ball. But it, I, uh, anyway, we're going to talk a little bit more about Palmer. Carl Morris, thank you so much. My pleasure. Good, Thanks, to, be, uh, good to be back with you again. Always All the a best. pleasure. There he is, three-time podcast, Swing Thoughts podcast Platinum veteran. level. Unbelievable. Platinum level. Tournament leader at three. <laughs> What's <it>. go, what <laughs> would be next? I don't even know. Uh, titanium. We'll make something up. Exactly. All the best to you. Mind Factor. Uh, what's the website again? www.themindfactor.com. All right, my friend. Take care. Thanks. Th- thank you. Bye. Right. Bye. Uh, uh, there we are. There we go. The master's music. So you wrote uh, for golf, about golf, uh, books. You know, Tim's got a uh, an extensive uh, book place. Book lab, library, I believe they call. <laughs> uh, Do you mean the books? extensive the books uh, in my office? Yeah, or maybe he's got an extensive books uh, that I've read. A bunch of books he's written. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. Uh, during all the years you covered golf, did you ever meet Arnold Palmer? Did a couple times. Tell me, talk to me. Um, at the Masters, I covered the Masters seven times in the nineties, and he would be one of those guys they'd bring into the press center, and it was always just. Uh, a wonderful occasion just to hear the king and it was a time for him to give his views on the modern game uh insights into things like course design because he had his own uh very prolific golf design company um and what was really so amazing and i saw it too with the uh the scribes the reporters with jack nicholas is they just loved this opportunity to share time with this guy and he just loved bantering back and forth and he knew so many of the reporters by name it was just a a wonderful thing to 
to experience? Um, you know, I thought it's funny. We were, I was talking about Arnold Palmer a little bit on the uh, radio show that I host, and, and was talking to Fred, you know, my buddy from many, many years. I said, you know, a lot of people don't realize that Arnold Palmer really wasn't, you know, anywhere. I, he won a lot of golf tournaments. But I said his real impact on the game wasn't as a player. You know, the last major, you know, I said he only won seven majors. And Fred said, really? He, you know, he would have thought he would have been up there like Nicholas. I said, no, he only won 60 tournaments, so nowhere near Tiger and Nicholas. And, but, but I said his impact on the game had nothing to do with his ability to play the game. It began that way, but the tentacles of Palmer, including the golf channel, you know, he's, he, he has a, his impact will be felt for generations to come long after whether he could hit a golf ball or not have, you know, long since passed. Absolutely. I think that you could argue, and I did in my blog, that I think that if you want to look at the single greatest influence on the growth of golf, it was Arnold Palmer. I agree. And that came from the confluence of him arriving and TV exploding in terms of of a cultural force that it was, and also an increase in golf pod, uh, broadcasts. He just had that every man persona. But, you know, and, and you're right. But see, a lot of people um, focus on, you know, the idea that golf came along and all of a sudden now it's being telecast and uh, it's no longer a country club. And here's this hero who looks like everyone else and is disheveled. He's untucked. He's from Pennsylvania. He's got these strong forearms. He's just an everyman. But where it really was felt is in the 1960s. You know, he was a guest on the Bob Hope specials, and oh, yeah. he was on Johnny Carson and all these things. And, and he was really sports' first I, uh, sort of television iconic pitch man that had it took for products that had nothing to do with golf. And that's where it, oil. <laughs> all that stuff, tractors, umbrellas, insurance, it all had. Yeah. He became a persona, persona outside of his own sport. Maybe the first one ever, because you think about it again, it, it wasn't just golf and television. It was television and commercials. And there was this reference for everyone, which was the golfer Arnold Palmer, not just Arnold Palmer, who happened to be a golfer. Yeah, well, he had he had charisma. He had this unbelievable charisma. Camera loved him. Yeah. He's a very good looking man for sure. Uh, had that lovely way of speaking of someone from Pennsylvania, the Rust Belt. He was just a very, he was just a, an easy guy to like, yeah. and he just spoke with this grace and 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 kind of low key but elegance and just this casualness and no pretension around him. And he wasn't a country, he wasn't a New York kind of guy. And he wasn't some spoiled rotten kid that came out of. Yeah, his dad was a greenkeeper and a head professional before they kind of got fancy. But I think sometimes what I said is is the thing that's overlooked about Arnold Palmer is that he became. Gretzky, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, all that stuff long before, the, all, yeah. like, like the first. A lot of people had done commercials in the 30s and 40s and 50s, you know, magazine. It was a baseball player for a product, but it wasn't nothing like Arnold Palmer came along. Um, and it was the birth of sort of, you know, after the baby boomers, sort of the, the birth of, of, of big time television proliferation as well as just golf. Because everyone acknowledges that, you know, Palmer was great for telecasting or televising golf on TV. He was just great for TV. Yeah, well, a lot of the credit goes to Mark McCormick. Yep. Who, uh, IMG. Exactly. And, and they put together um, an agreement, a business agreement, I think, 
for life, if you will, based on a handshake. Yeah. And Mark McCormick saw the potential in Palmer and and what he could do with that. And um, yeah, they built an empire together. And again, but one of the things too, so you can marry, you can have charisma, the camera can like you, yeah. but Palmer put himself in, I mean, the way he competed, he yeah. was he was the go for it guy. Nineteen sixty, he's uh, U.S. Open. He's uh, I think seven shots behind, and he tells two reporters, Bob Drum, Dan Jenkins, so I'm going to drive the first hole, a three hundred and sixty four yard par four, and I'm going to shoot sixty five today. He drives the first hole, makes six birdies in seven holes, shoots sixty five, and win. Wow! Mm-hmm. I mean, talk about a combination of of factors that would just make people fall in love with them. Well, and it just was sort of you know part of the Palmer lore that he you know he went for the green. In those days, they played thirty six holes. Um, in the final, U- round, final yeah. round, and he was having lunch with Bob Drum, and he said, you know, what does 65 get me? And Drum says, nothing, because you're too far back. And you're not Ben Hogan. And you're not Ben Hogan. <laughs> and uh, he goes off, and, and that's a part of You know, I think sometimes, I was going to bring this up with Carl Morris. I think in a way, if there was any negative about the legacy of Palmer, it was that that style, like p- amateurs wanted to emulate him. Uh, sometimes to their detriment because he was a go-forward guy. And, yeah, he blew a lot of championships. But, you know, he, he was of a skill level, you know, that elite level of, of skill uh, set in that only exists in a very narrow band of golfers that he could go for it. Mm-hmm. But what amateurs didn't see was lots of times it didn't work out. That's right. That's right. But he also took with it a mindset of going for it and playing aggressively. It's like you can see it in Phil Mickelson, too. He's always going for it, often to his detriment. Yep. But a lot of times it's really paid off. You look at professional golfers and the way they putt. They don't roll that thing up there. Most of the times they're they're charging it. And because you have to play with a certain degree of... I'm not sure if the word is aggression, but confidence. But it's going for it, and it's and it's and it's it's just really hitting it and chasing it in many ways. Well, you you know you can't sink putts that don't get to the holes. And I think I said this on a podcast earlier this summer. One of my you know my friends, my better ball partner, Tim Southcott, is one of the best putters I've ever played with. And I asked him once, just sort of in passing, and why he thinks he's such a good putter. And he said, "I'm not afraid of three footers." Yeah, and and he's not. And 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 I've seen that in my putting that. You know, I'll I'll hit it three or four feet by a lot, but I'm confident that if it doesn't go in, I'm going to have it. I will. I'll. I'm. I'm okay if I miss a three or four footer once in a while because you're going to sink a lot of putts. Yeah, but I, I think we can make a bit of a case of of Arnold Palmer as opposed to a lot of golfers, and it's come through comes through in the instruction. Well, you better be careful. You better make sure you got your right wrist bent, your left wrist, left wrist flat, and you keep your head steady and all that. And I don't think Arnold Palmer ever gave a lesson that was based on, on those types of things. It was more for see what you want, go for it, make an aggressive stroke. Don't be tentative. He was a, you know, he was a pilot, right? Yeah. 22,000, 20,000 hours of flight time. Um, and I, I knew I had known that, you know, I was, you know, being a pilot myself. Um, and a yes, doctor. 
Pardon me? And a doctor? Well, I'm I'm a fake doctor, but I'm a real pilot. And it's interesting because I, I'd known that Palmer basically in the 60s, you know, they were flying all over the country and all over the world, and he decided that he wanted to be a pilot as well and got to sort of log all these hours as a captain, pilot, and command on big-time aircraft. But I, I didn't know this until I read it this morning, that Palmer's early fear of flying is what led him to pursue his airman certificate. Cool. And I'm going to tell you, I was exactly the same. When I started flying as a kid, I was deathly afraid of it. And so I decided that I would learn everything I could learn about flying in my 20s and 30s. I used to read all about it, and then when I got a chance to fly in an airplane, I went, oh, I could do this. Just like Zen, you know? Move towards those things you resist. So... Do you want to, I, I have an Arnold Palmer story that I don't tell that often, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, because it sounds like complete and utter bullshit. Yeah, you know what? I, I want to hear it. My only How's that for a tease? The, the, I'm, I'm engrossed. I'm ready for it. My, so one of my, my uh, encounters with Arnold Palmer, and so he wasn't exactly—so a lot of the things that have been written about made him out to be a saint, and he, he definitely was, was not that— um, there's many tales of his uh, times late at night, shall we say, early in his career. But um, if he didn't like where something was going or he just didn't want to deal with it, he would he would make that very clear. And it was really interesting to me that when I was researching my book on Mo Norman, it was at the U.S. Open. I forget where it was, but I had some time to be able to talk to Arnold Palmer and he was he was uh, obviously on the tour when Mo was on the tour in the late fifties and sixties. And I asked him, and he just I said, uh, "What was it like, you know, being around Mo? And what do you think of Mo?" He said, "Mo was a very fine player." Yeah, okay, Mr. Palmer, thank you. And, and what else was there about that? Mo was a very fine player. Well, he didn't want to talk about Mo Norman. Nope, he did not want to go there. Interesting. And um, so that's I where, wonder why. Well, a lot of the pros didn't like Mo because um, they thought Mo made them look kind of foolish. They were trying to transcend this image of being hustlers and, mm. and that type of thing. And Mo, Mo didn't come off as a professional. He, he spoke kind of strangely. His clothes sometimes didn't match. His you know sometimes his clothes were stained and whatnot. So they didn't they didn't like what Mo represented to people. And um, I just thought that was interesting. I was a, but he, so really nice guy, but not a saint, but he would, he would very firm on holding boundaries and whatnot. Mm -hmm. he, he was, so that was a, just an insight into, into Palmer that I thought was pretty interesting. So your story, man. Well, there, I'll just see if I can do the super brief version. I, I was friends with a kid on the Canadian tour. Kid, I was in my thirties. He was as well. His name is Kevin Baker. We played together at the national. He was a member, a very fine amateur, turned pro, and played a lot of Canadian tour events over the course of many years. And through him, he lived in Florida. In fact, he lived at Isleworth before Tiger. No. Oh no, Kevin. Kevin, uh, his family had you know some good. Um, Resources, we'll say. Do re mi. So he, he lived at Isleworth, and then he played at Bay Hill, and I got to be friends. And so over the course of three or four winters, I'd go down for a couple of days, and we'd play at Bay Hill. Nice. And I had played in the shootout probably a time or two over the course of a couple winter visits and never met Palmer and never played in any group with anybody. And then one time I went down for four or five days in a row, we played in the shootout every day at noon. So I played it sort of three or four days, and, and after the tradition is, you sit around after, and, and there might be 
you know, 20 guys. There might be 40. Len Matisse is there, and there's Dickie Pride, and there's Robert Dameron, who was Kevin's friend, who I became friends with. And one day I played with Robert Dameron, played, played on the PGA Tour. His dad, who's a scratch, maybe a plus one. Me, who I was about a one or a two at the time. You couldn't be anything more than that or you can't play in it. Because yeah. you're playing the back tees. Not the, not the very back tees, but pretty far back at Bay Hill. And the fourth member of the group is a guy named Dow Finsterwald. Who was oh yeah legend who, legend who was uh, for you kids who don't know he won the like the 1958 or 60 PGA championship and he was Palmer's buddy and yeah. and every day it was basically Palmer and his group sort of either an elite businessman or some guy like Dow Finsterwald so part of the story is I'm in the group with Dow and it's no strokes everyone's playing scratch and your team you 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 all win. And uh, I think I've told you this part where I was about four or five holes into it. I keep calling him Mr. Finsterwald, and he doesn't correct me. I'm just some punk, and he's Dow Finsterwald. Doesn't know who I am. <laughs> I'm hitting it pretty good. And then all of a sudden, I birdie. This is Bay Hill, so I birdie the par four, the par five, and the par three in a row. I go four, five, six, or five, six, seven. I birdie, make three birdies in a row. And then as we're heading to the next hole, I say something, something, Mr. Finsterwald. And he says quite clearly, you can call me Dow. <laughs> Which I thought was awesome. I'm like, all right, I'm at the Dow level. I'm in, now. I'm in. I'm in. Three birdies, and I can call him Dow. You know, when I was scuffing it around the first couple holes because I was so nervous, there was Mr. Finstowell. So <laughs> this is the part that sounds like I'm BSing, but it's true, and I don't tell it too often because it sounds just made up. So we go to the girl room after, and, and I've been there now three. The, the point is I've been there enough that Mr., Mr. Palmer has seen me in this group of guys, and there's Matisse and this guy, and I really didn't even know who those guys were. And we won that day. And what the tradition is, is you go to your table and one of the guys who works for Mr. Palmer finds out who the winning team is and they announce it. And then everyone comes over and sort of begrudgingly throws their money down. And I'm talking to Robert Dameron and I see out of the corner of my eye, Mr. Arnold Palmer is about to throw his 20 down and I grab it off the table and then he walks away. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got Arnold Palmer's $20 bill. Now, as Fred said to me this morning, do you still have it? No. Why didn't I save it? Because I'm stupid. Did I get him to sign it? I should have. But that's a true story. I took his 20 because everyone splits up the money. But I took Palmer's 20. And it would have been a great story because after that, I said to Robert Dameron's father, who is a member there and knows Arnold very well, I said, do you think it would be okay if I went and asked him for his autograph now? He said, yes, you can do that. Because he'd been there, I'd been there a few days, and I hadn't been obtrusive. And I walked over to Mr. Palmer's table, and I said, I hate to bother you. Cause he, and he knows I was on that team that won, so I'm a golfer. And I said, uh, would you mind? And I took a Bay Hill scorecard. I said, could I get your autograph? I said, it's not for me, it's for my dad. And he nice. signed it. Uh, he said, for sure. And uh, this is before the, the era of uh, pictures, uh, you know, selfies and stuff. But he signed it to Lou, my dad's name. Happy birthday, Arnold Palmer. <sighs> now, I did save that. Nice. But I wish I had saved the 20 because it would have been a great story. Because I, you know, other than... It the, is a great story. Uh, it, it would be a better story. It's a great story if I got Arnie to sign my stupid 20. I had an image of it happening and everything and you snatching. No, I took his part. money so fast you wouldn't even believe it. <laughs> no, I believe it completely. You know, he played that thing 
I'm telling the well, I mean, again, I, I was informed of this game that it went on for years. Yeah. The shootout every day at noon. First guy in the tee is Palmer and any number of guys. And it was the thing to be in it. And, you know, I didn't get in it all the time because if they got a certain number of teams, you just didn't make it. So the reason I didn't get in it the first couple times or only played it once because once they got to a number, you're not in. So the week that I got in a bunch of them because I guess there wasn't as many guys hanging around, but. Like, it was pretty heady stuff for me, you know, because I could be putting, getting ready to play the third or fourth group, and I just walk over, and and I wasn't the only guy that did it. Everyone sort of quietly would just kind of sneak over and watch (laughs) Arnie hit it. I mean, we're not at a pro-am. I'm at this, we're playing in the same group, or the same game, and afterwards, we're all having iced teas in the room, and it was pretty cool for me. You're having Arnold Palmer's? Maybe. I just know it was, uh, again, like a lot of things in the game, I didn't really appreciate what a sort of privilege that was. 100%. At the time, I would have appreciated it more now, like a lot of things in the game, you know? Well, I think it. what I love about that story, it's about the playing of the game. Yeah. Getting out there and the competition, having some fun, and, and that really is golf. And and I think this, we talk about it a lot, but I think people just lose sight of the fact that it's about having fun with friends, having a good time, and Arnold, he was the epitome of that. Absolutely. And that's what I, I think it's a, a great that you take that away from it, because that is the impression I want to leave. This guy was, this would have been in the mid-90s, years removed from being a tour player of any significance, but man, he loved that competition. He loved, he did, he, they, they, from my, according to my friend, and again, Dameron's dad, who was a member there, you know, when he was in town, you, you could count on him playing that game. If he, if, if the only time he missed it is when he was on the road doing, you know, business. Yeah, exactly. But if he was in town and he was at that golf course, he was in that game every day at noon because he wanted to win. And again, he must have had 40 clubs. Like, oh, yeah. It was hysterical. Two tour bags filled with stuff. <laughs> I remember seeing that going, wow. I mean, this guy is still trying to find it. Oh, absolutely. I think he was a legendary also for the number of putters he had. They just like, just, it just rotated them through mm-hmm. all the time. Um, Tim O'Connor, uh, O'ConnorGolf.ca. Uh, you can get a hold of Tim. Uh, he still has room in his roster. I want to throw something by him. Sure. So we've been talking, uh, Timmy and I, about uh, doing a version of our show uh, live. Not live, but a live taping with some of our swing thought, you know, 100 percenters or anyone that wants to. So we're going to throw it out there that sometime in sort of early November-ish, we're going to have a taping and and we'll we'll invite you all to come and, you know, be part of it and not just watch it, but also take part in it. and Participate. Participate. And we'd like to hear your, you know, your stories of golf and your stories of mental... You know, positives and breakdowns. And, you know, I certainly love hearing stories of people. I love stories about guys that flip out. I think those (laughs) amuse me. I know everyone you ask that, you know, what's the worst you've ever... Because usually it's me. But, uh, you know, what would be the worst flip out you've ever seen or... I just love that. Or maybe it'll be what's the biggest win you had this year in terms of your mental game. Or just like the story that you just shared about you with Arnold Palmer. And I think that that is so much a part of the game that we don't pay attention to. It's just the fun you can have playing with some buddies, maybe a little bit of money on it. And I mean, in the needling that goes on. And to me, that is way more important than the number that goes down on the card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a measure. We all want to play well. But overall, I, I think it's just I, I think it's just 
for people who don't do it, it's it's the competition, having a little bit on the line. It just keeps you involved and just makes it just a little bit more fun. And especially with the needling that goes on sure. and that kind of stuff. I, it, that is one of the key reasons I love it. Like to when play. you told me you three putted seven times. I went, really? Did you? Interesting. I lied. I lied. Um, okay, so there's our thing. Uh, coming early November, it'll be Swing Thoughts Live. Uh, we're going to invite, uh, I don't know how many people we can have. In the maybe new studio. In the new studio. Maybe. Yeah. Like probably, I don't know, 15, 10, 15, 18 number of uh, people that could sort of sit there comfortably and we could mic the room and, and talk to people. And um, here's what I wanted to throw by you. Would you be amenable if we had a contest where uh, the winner, or winner, got to uh, play around a golf with us? And maybe you throw in a uh, sort of introductory coaching session. I'm all over that. Absolutely. So you get the uh, excruciating privilege of uh, watching us hack it around. Endearing privilege. Wouldn't that be great, though, if it just turned out like in reality? (laughs) We're just psychotic. Throwing clubs over people's heads. And I had another... Flipping out. And I had more shanking episodes. Oh, my God. I'd love it. (laughs) Anyway, I think that might be a fun thing to do. I mean, we've got about... I mean, realistically, you know, we can golf into November here where we live. In the Great White North. Um... You know, I mean, unusual. And last year was unusual. We were golfing into December. But, you know, reasonably, we could do this. Uh, and I didn't tell Tim before the show. I just thought of it recently. I thought, okay, we'll get some guys to come in and watch. So, yeah, we talked about that. But I thought, you know what would be kind of cool is we have a little contest. We put it up on our Facebook page. You answer a skill testing question. I don't know. Whatever. First five people that want to. And we'll arrange a foursome. So you, me, and two uh, swing thought people. And then you just give kind of a... Maybe over lunch after a little bit of an introduction to what you do. And, uh, well, what I'll, I'll just sit there talking about how great I am. I think it'll become like... that's kind of what I do. It'll become like the Steve Martin <laughs> thing, you know? How to, how to, you know, always take a litter bag in your car when it's full, just toss it out the window. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, these are all things coming soon. Um, the Ryder Cups this week. The it'll only be thoughts, fun. Well, it'll it will be. be like I said, the only thing I think is uh, I really want the Americans to win because... I, I think there, it's at the tipping point now. <laughs> I, I know. I know what you're saying. And it would be good for the game. But I know when it gets down to the short strokes, it gets that I'm going to go like, okay, Europeans, come back. Crush. So I just. I know. I, I think it partially, and excuse our American fans, there's just something for Canadians to see Americans get their hats I'm handed totally to them. I'm totally with it. Except that, you know, after this Ryder Cup, how interested are you going to continue? I mean, that's interesting, seeing them getting smoked each time. I don't think it would diminish the interest in the Ryder Cup at all. Okay. Well, you know what? I'm going to let you have that. To me, I think uh, at some point, well, no, I'm not going to let you have it. Like like I grant you this power. But no, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, okay. For me, I just want to see the Europeans having to come back and and win the next one. Because, you know, they just win them all the time. Okay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'll go with that. You don't have to. I don't have to change your mind. No, but I can so, see the logic in it, but I know my heart is going to, I'm going to want Justin Rose to sink putts on Phil Mickelson. Because it's fun. Yeah. Uh, 
And uh, so Golf with Tim and Howard and Swing Thoughts Live, these are all things coming up in the next little while. Maybe we can even get some swag from our friends at TaylorMade Adidas. You know, we'll, oh, get, yeah. we'll get hats for everybody. And we'll play either at Glencairn or, or Blue, Blue Springs. Springs bro, you know, Glen- See, I know, we're at the club link. Perfect. Um, we'll put the details on our Facebook page in the next week or so once we figure them out. And uh, it'll be room for two people. It'll be golf and then lunch and then a little bit of uh, a private maybe or you know, not a semi-private little chat with... Coach Tim. Okay. And yeah. wisdom from Howard. I'll, I'll make do, you laugh. He'll tell a couple I'll jokes. I'll sit there telling you how great I am. And he's funny. Uh, all right, make folks. You laugh. We got to go because we're tired and it's raining and I got to go back to Home Depot. I got a lot. Of, I got a resp- I got responsibilities. My so <laughs> I'm going to a golf tournament. Okay. Just stand around and talk. Till next time. This has been Swing Thoughts, the greatest golf podcast ever in golfdom. Ever. All right. In other places, but the horns they blow in that sound.